Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would speak to us through your word tonight. Change our minds and our hearts so that we would be people who know you better and serve you with every part of our being. Amen. I reckon that image has kind of changed in your mind in the last few months. Probably looks a little bit like a prison ship, a cruise ship these days. But if I was to ask you last year what you would think when I popped this up, uh, you would probably think it represents a bit of a nice holiday. At least it seems to be one of the fastest growing holidays until the last two or three months, one of the fastest growing holiday experiences that Australians are willing to put their hands up. If you look through the newspapers on the weekend, there are many, many ads for cruises because it seems like that is the sort of thing that people are after. And there are bigger and bigger cruise ships being launched all around the world, most of them empty right now. If you sign up, you get everything laid on for you. All of your needs are looked after and cared for. The food on many of them is great and the entertainment is right there and you go from beautiful island to beautiful island. Uh, Let me move on and I'll make sense of this by the time we get to the end of this little section. I want to read for you an ad that was placed in an English newspaper a little over 100 years ago by a man named Ernest Shackleton. He was an Antarctic explorer. If you can't read that print, let me read it for you. It says, Men wanted for hazardous journey, small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return doubtful, honour and recognition in case of success. I wonder if you would, you would sign up for an adventure like that. It's a little different to a cruise ship, isn't it? This is the boat that Shackleton took to the Antarctic. It doesn't seem like something that many of us would want to be involved in. If you're here tonight and you're either a Christian or you're someone who is investigating Jesus and looking into the Christian faith and trying to figure it out for yourself, I wonder if, as you think about Jesus, you thought when you were, you were putting your trust in him, you thought you were entering onto a cruise ship or if you thought you were joining an expedition. Did you think that if you put your faith in Jesus, life would look like continual blessing would come in the here and now from the God who has sent Jesus to save you from your sins? Or did you think more along the lines that you were boarding an expedition and the journey would be dangerous and difficult? Uh, There are many of us here tonight, so many of us might have different stories to tell, but we probably all fit in one or other of those categories, cruise ship or expedition ship. We'll come back to that, but I just want to give you a bit of a summary of what happens in these last uh, 11 or so chapters of Samuel. It's really the tale of two kings. There's one king, the king that the people wanted, uh, so that they could be like all the other nations. Israel wanted to look like the other nations, to have a king to fight their battles for them and go out before them like all the other nations, and they got King Saul. And as these chapters unfold and unpack, Saul looks like he's not a great king. He's not serving the people, he's not leading the people, he's leading his own interests and serving himself in everything that he does. And there's a different king, not a king that the people wanted, but the king that God has, the king who is in waiting for the throne. It's God's anointed king, David. 
And David looks more and more as these chapters unfold like the king that the people really need. He comes to their defence, he rescues and he represents God and he lives his life as a fugitive. He is on the run day after day and year after year as these chapters unfold. So the remainder of Samuel is this story of two vastly different kings as we look at what goes on. Let's go back to chapter 23. And as we read it tonight, chapter 23 starts with David hearing of the Philistines attacking the town of Keilah. God's people are under threat in that town, and so David makes inquiries of God. Have a look with me at chapter 23, verse 4. We'll pick it up. Once again, David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord answered him, Go down to Keilah, for I'm going to give the Philistines into your hand. If you did any reading before tonight, you would have seen in chapter 22 that David's actually got a prophet with him. A prophet at the start of chapter 22, the prophet Gad speaks the word of God to David. And alongside of that, David also has the last remaining priest is with him. And it's not just the priest who's with him, but it's the ephod, a priestly garment. Uh, There's a diagram up on the screen of what the high priest would have looked like when he wore that garment. And one of the parts of that is the breastplate uh, in Deuteronomy described as the breastplate of decision. Now, I don't know exactly how this worked, but it looked like God was able to use the ephod and the priest and the king were able to inquire of the Lord to ask him uh, questions at whatever they needed at a particular time and God could speak. So David has the opportunity to hear God speak both through the prophet and through the ephod. So it's God's king in waiting in the person of David, the one who is hearing God speak in these different ways. And as we look at just these couple of chapters, the contrast here between David and Saul is fairly dramatic. David is the one who hears God speak through prophet and ephod or through priest Saul, in chapter 22, hears a Gentile speak. He hears Doeg the Edomite speaking to him. God is silent because Samuel, God's prophet, has left, promising that God will judge Saul, and he's disappeared off the scene. David is the one that God is speaking to. Saul hears nothing from God. David is the one who's defending the people of God from a Gentile attack. We'll see that in chapter 23. The town of Keilah is defended by David. Saul, what a contrast, Saul in chapter 22 is the one who is destroying the people of God. He destroys all of the priests bar one who escapes and the whole town of Nob is destroyed through Doeg the Edomite. So we've got a huge contrast between the king in waiting and the king that the people want. So the story goes on and after inquiring of the Lord, David and his followers go down to Keilah and they defeat the Philistines and they save the people of Keilah. Have a look at verse 5. So David and his men went to Keilah, fought the Philistines and carried off their livestock. He inflicted heavy losses on the Philistines and saved the people of Keilah. Imagine what it would be like, surrounded by your most hated enemies, the Philistines, ready to come in and kill you and take all of your possessions. And here comes David, God's chosen king, who rescues you, destroys your enemies, saves the day. What happens next? 
having been saved by God's chosen king, how will these people respond? What happens next? Have a look at verse 12. David inquires of the Lord as to what these people of Keilah will do. Let me just firstly talk you through this before we look at verse 12. Sorry. These people are experiencing the saving work of God's king and yet they know that Saul is after David and wants to kill David. And as Saul comes trying to trap David in this city, David is going to inquire of God as to what it is the people in this town will do. Now, have a look with us at verse 12. Again, David asked, Will the citizens of Keilah surrender me and my men to Saul? And the Lord said, They will. It's incredible, isn't it? They are saved from certain destruction by the Philistines, by the work of David and his men. God's chosen king has come to the rescue to save their lives. And now what happens when the pressure comes on? Surely they've, they've heard of Saul's reputation. He's killed nearly every priest up at Nob and destroyed the city of Nob, the town of Nob, through Doeg the Edomite. So they're fearful of Saul, and yet they experience, they have just experienced God saving them from destruction through God's chosen king. Friends, there's a really significant warning here for us. You see, it is possible to hear of the saving work of God's king, to have an experience of that, to know what it is like to be saved by God's chosen king, and yet to so fear the kings of our world that we would turn away from God's chosen king. It's possible to have an experience of God's gospel and the work that God has done for us in the person of Jesus, but to be so fearful of the powers and authorities around us that we would reject God's chosen king under pressure from the world around us. The people of Keilah are a very significant warning to us. If you side yourself with King Jesus, with God's chosen king, then it'll be difficult in this world, but it is absolutely worth it. And it's something we need to get our heads around and be ready to respond to. So the story goes on. What's God doing in these verses and in, as this story unfolds? Let's try and unpack a little bit of it. Come with me to verse 7. Verse 7. Saul was told that David had gone to Keilah and he said, God has delivered him into my hands for David has imprisoned himself by entering a town with gates and bars. So Saul is ready to go down to Keilah to grab David and, and definitely to kill him because he sees that he's trapped in this town. Funnily enough, Saul is talking to himself about what God has done. David is contrasted. David is the one who has the prophet speak, who hears God speak through something that happens with the ephod. Saul is left simply talking to himself in these verses. David hears that the people of Keilah are going to surrender him to God and so he leaves Keilah, takes his men out into the desert and runs away from Saul. Let's pick it up in verse 14. David stayed in the wilderness strongholds and in the hills of the desert of Ziph. Day after day Saul searched for him but God did not give David 
into his hands. Saul's got a, a few thousand men with him, a significant army, and presumably he's got the people of the land on his side. Both the Ziphites, if you look through the story, and also the people of Keilah are willing to support Saul in this. The Ziphites actually actively go to him to try and hand David over to him. They're terrified perhaps of Saul as the story unfolds, but they're willing to put David into his hands and to have him uh, given over to death. And David wanders around in the wilderness. Saul has every advantage possible to try and be able to actually track him down. Thousands of men on his side, the support of the local people. Day and night he's continuing to search for David and yet he cannot find him. Why not? Have a look at the end of verse 14. God did not give David into his hands. Why can't the current king hunt down and kill David? It's because God's in control. David's life is not in the hands of Saul, it's in the hands of God. God is the all-powerful God who works in all things for his purposes in our world. If you're here tonight and you are burdened by the anxieties of our world, if coronavirus, if a massive economic downturn all feels like it is weighing heavily on your shoulders... It's worth being reminded that our God is in control of all those events. Life might descend into chaos and disorder, but all of it is in the hands of a God who knows all things and works through all things. We are right to have our trust in him. Now that doesn't mean that you ought to do nothing. In the face of adversity, act. If you look at David, he acts. And continues to act, sometimes with great urgency. He is keen to do stuff. Do stuff. He doesn't just sit on his hands and say, God's sovereign, therefore I don't need to do anything. No, no, David acts. But in, in all of the actions that he takes, God is the one who is in control. So as you and I face adversity in our lives, understand that God is the one who is the all-powerful ruler of our world. The present powers and principalities and viruses have no power except the power that God has given to them. The Lord Jesus, when he was being tried before Pilate, was under enormous turmoil and stress and enormous pressure from the ruling authorities of the day. And he said this in response to Pilate. Jesus said to him, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. That's the world that we live in. Our God rules in all things. In chaos and in easy times, our God is in control. Take comfort from that. As David hides out and tries to avoid the murderous Saul with what is now 600 men in his, his own personal army, uh, his friend Jonathan goes out to him in the desert of Ziph, in the wilderness. Uh, have a look with me at verse 16. Verse 16, Saul's son Jonathan went to David at Horesh and helped him to find strength in God. You see the irony there? King Saul is doing everything he can day and night with 3,000 men with every advantage that he has and he cannot find David. It is like a needle in a haystack in this desert. Saul is scratching his head trying to figure out how on earth can I track this bloke down? 
And Jonathan simply walks out in the desert and finds his friend. It's like there's a signpost that says, David, this way. And he just follows the signpost. And yet Saul is incapable of finding him. Why not? Because God's in control. God's protecting his chosen king. And God is delivering his Jonathan, the very good friend of his chosen king, to provide comfort to David. What does Jonathan do when he comes to his very good mate, David? Have a look at verse 16. He helped him find strength in God. He helped him find strength in God. Now, friends, there's all sorts of really helpful stuff we can do for one another in times of great need. If you're under enormous stress and difficulty in your life, then someone delivering a meal, someone just listening to all of your worries, someone helping practically with something that you need done, mowing the lawn, cleaning the house, all of those things are good things to do. What's our greatest need? To find strength in God. To find strength in God. Friends, we don't need to hear that everything is going to be okay. It may not be okay in this world. It may well be disastrous for us in this world. There might be cancer, serious illness, loss of jobs, all sorts of difficulties and dramas. We need to encourage one another to find strength in God. Because in relationship with the God who has promised us eternal life in Christ and every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies, that gives us the ability to deal with any difficulty that will come in this life. Jonathan helps David to find strength in God. What exactly does he do? What is it that he's going to point out? Have a look with me at verse 17. Don't be afraid. This is Jonathan speaking. Don't be afraid, he said. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You will be king over Israel and I'll be second to you. Even my father Saul knows this. See, Jonathan just points him to the promises of God. David is God's anointed king. He can trust that God will deliver on his promises. And so in that manner, David finds strength in God. And as you see the path for this, you see what happens to God's anointed king. It's suffering now and glory later. David spends literally years being chased around in the wilderness by Saul and his army. But eventually he will take the throne and rule over God's people as God's king. Friends, the path of God's chosen king is the path for you and I as well. Anyone who was associated with David had the same story, didn't they? Those 600 who have joined together with God's chosen king, who have joined together with David, they're wandering around in the wilderness being tracked down in fear of their lives until eventually one day David will take the throne. And so it's suffering first and glory later. Our chapter ends with Saul with his murderous intent getting so incredibly close to David. Did you notice that? Saul nearly has both hands wrapped around David and we know that he is intent on murdering him. Have a look at verse 25. We'll pick it up from there. Saul and his men began the search and when David was told about it, he went down to the rock and stayed in the desert of Maon. When Saul heard this, he went into the desert of Maon in pursuit of David. Saul was going along one side of the mountain 
and David and his men were on the other side, hurrying to get away from Saul. As Saul and his forces were closing in on David and his men to capture them, let's just leave it there for a moment. Can you picture the story? Here is Saul who has spent so long dedicating all of his time and energy towards murdering David. And now it looks like he can nearly see him and reach out and touch him. David is is running as fast as he can, trying to get away with his 600 men. And here comes Saul just about to put his arms around him and murder him. If you were watching a movie of this, you would feel the music bring the tension up. It would get faster and faster as we're getting just to that point where it's crunch time for David. That's the situation that David finds himself in. Saul is right there. I'm not sure if you're the sort of person who likes to watch action, adventure, sort of thriller movies. Uh, They fit my category of a good movie. I actually watched one last night and the tension rose and the music came along with it and I was sitting next to my wife, who's quite a small human being, but her, her uh, plan for what happens when you're watching those sort of movies is when the tension builds, she reaches out and grabs my hand and squeezes. And she doesn't grab in a very convenient way. She'll just grab anywhere she can on my hand and crushes hard so that I can feel bones being pushed together. And she's just intent on watching what happens and, try, and hoping the good guy gets away and she squeezes harder and harder. So if I miss everything that's happening on the screen, I still understand this is a tense moment because I am being crushed. And that's it here, isn't it, in chapter 23? Here is David running for his life and Saul closer and closer, just about to grab him. What happens next? Have a look, verse 26. Saul and his forces were closing in on David and his men to capture them. A messenger came to Saul saying, Come quickly, the Philistines are raiding the land. Then Saul broke off his pursuit of David and went to meet the Philistines. What an anticlimax. It was all just about to happen. There should have been a big boom at the action that ends all this. And it's an absolute fizzer. Saul, who's given up on trying to fight the Philistines, who's not trying to defend his own people, has been chasing down David to kill him. Now he suddenly gets this text message that says, by the way, the Philistines are invading the land. Suddenly he decides, that's a much better idea. I'll go and hunt after these guys. And David gets away. David disappears. Why? At this point in the text, there's nothing said. Why has all this happened? Well, we know why. It doesn't get said in this part of the text, but if you go back to verse 14, let me take you back there and remind you, the end of verse 14. God did not give David into his hands. Why did he hear word that the Philistines were looting the land? Because God wasn't going to let his chosen king be destroyed. See, God is in control in all things. God's plan is for his king to suffer, definitely, but God's plan is that eventually his anointed king, his Messiah, his Christ, is going to be crowned with all glory and honour. And so his future is certain. David spends years running, but eventually God will place him on the throne because he's God's chosen king. And God's plans always work out the way God wants them to. That's the way of God's chosen king. That's the way of David. That's the way of Jesus. 
See, David is the king over a kingdom that ends. Jesus is the king over the eternal kingdom. And he will be the one that all power and authority and all glory and honour are brought to for all eternity because God's plans always work out exactly as God wants them to. And this plan, this method that God uses, this suffering first and glory second, is all throughout the scriptures. Have a look, just listen to this. Let me read you through Luke. At the end of Luke's gospel, after Jesus has been crucified and dead and buried, two of his disciples are on the road to Emmaus saying to one another, what on earth was that? We thought that was God's chosen king, but he's dead. How can all these things have worked out? And a man who happens to be Jesus is walking along the road with him. They don't recognise him. They're chatting and they speak to Jesus about all these events and Jesus responds to them. Luke 24, verse 25 to 27, if you're taking notes. Jesus says, How foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. See, the whole Bible points us in this direction. God's chosen king is going to suffer first and glory later. That's God's plan for God's king. That's God's plan for God's people as well. If you follow the king, you follow the Messiah, you'll have the same path, you'll have the same journey as King Jesus. Have a look with me at Acts 14. The gospel is going out and disciples of Jesus and the apostles of Jesus are preaching the gospel. Here's what they say. They pre- Sorry, let me pick this up. Acts 14, verse 21 and 22. They preached the gospel in that city and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. See, lots of people have come to faith. They've heard the message of the gospel. What do they then say? Just remember, it's suffering first and glory later. That is the Christian path. It's the same in Romans 8, verse 17. Romans 8, verse 17, Paul says, Now if we are children, then we're heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings. In order that, we may also share in his glory. So the expectation is, if you're a Christian here tonight, it'll be suffering for the cause of the gospel, suffering because you are associated with God's chosen king for all of this life and glory next. All of those who are gathered to David, start at chapter 22 there, the discontent, the distressed and the in debt. All of the misfits gathered to Jesus and their experience as they joined with the king in waiting. They spent years running for their life. But they were joined together with God's chosen king. They threw their lot in with him and they suffered because of it. Friends, if you're wondering whether or not you want to put your lot in with Jesus, know what you're getting yourself in for. You are getting yourself in for a life of suffering, but glory next. My wife, Jen, and I have got four kids. 
and they've all been a great joy for us. But I remember thinking before our first was born, I wonder what all this is going to be like. Had great hopes that it was going to be a wonderful experience, plenty of joys. Looked forward to being called Dad and seeing everything that would happen with that. Had great expectations about being a parent. And then reality hit. It's not all just smelling the roses. There is really hard work in being a parent. There's a lack of sleep and there is a huge change in what happens in your life. I remember having a friend... Who was, she was just about to have her first and she said to me, um, we're just going to make sure that, nothing, not, that this baby does not change our life at all. And it didn't take very long for her to realise that that baby was going to change all of their life, all of the time. Friends, that is what it's like to put your trust in the Lord Jesus. If you follow Jesus, it will change all of your life, all of the time. You'll be be doing suffering for the Lord Jesus all of the time. Christians throughout history have suffered persecution. They haven't been allowed to own property or operate a business. They've been burned at the stake simply for being Christians. Now, we're not in that space at the moment, but we're certainly in the space of being persecuted. People at your work might call you a fool for following Jesus. People in the schoolyard might want to have nothing to do with you because you're a Christian. People at uni may have harsh words about your ethics and there might be mocking jokes about the foolishness of Christians in our world. What did you expect? Were you thinking about the cruise ship? All of the blessings of God right here, right now, so that life was nothing but joy. Did you hear the message of glory and the new heavens and the new earth but miss the description of taking up your cross and following Jesus? The endurance is this ship. The endurance went to the Antarctic and was crushed by ice and sank. It's not much of a trip, is it? 1 Samuel shows us what the Christian life is like. God's king is going to suffer. The king who cares for God's people, who goes in a battle to protect God's people, who puts himself in harm's way to defeat God's people's enemies. That's the king that we follow. So if we go with this king, if we serve this king as we should, if this king leads us, we too will suffer. But as we do that, we ought to consider that these present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that's going to be revealed in us. Amen.